Uh, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, we're jumping back into the book of Ephesians today and our series in Him. The title of today's message is Bondservants of Christ. Bondservants of Christ. We find ourselves in this part of the book where Paul is giving practical instructions to uh, the people that attended the church in Ephesus. And um, Paul's pattern was to share the gospel. And he spent a long time doing that early in the letter. And then the last few weeks, we've been in this part of the book that you might call family code or household, household code, where Paul is giving practical instructions to believers uh, in homes for how to walk out their faith in the context of home. And, and today's message actually touches the workplace as well, which we'll see as we dive into the text. So verse 5, Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word says that every mountain shall be made low, every valley raised up when Christ comes. And so we understand that, Lord, those in high positions are brought low in a sense, and those in low positions are brought high in a sense where we all stand on the same ground before the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the dignity of all people that is taught in Scripture. And Father, I pray that you bring our hearts and our minds um, to that plain ground before the cross today. Lord, not only so that we can see who we are in Christ and remember the gospel and remember the cross, but also, Lord, so that we can see how we ought to approach others and how we ought to love and serve others. So, Father, bless this time as we look at this practical passage, but help us, as always, never to do anything or discuss anything too far from the cross. So with the cross in view, Lord, we enter your word today. We ask you to speak by your grace and give grace to the hearer and the speaker alike as we are weak and need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we dive too deeply into this text, let's start with the first word. He says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So let's try to wrap our minds around that idea a little bit of bondservants. Let's remember that this letter was written in a world that was very different than ours, in a culture that was very different than ours. And the idea of a bondservant probably isn't something that we can relate to. If anything, we might have a revulsion to it, as we all know the evils of slavery, especially in American history. The, the idea of a bondservant doesn't speak of slavery, however, as we might understand it. A bondservant was someone who freely gave themselves up wholly to another's will. You might say that bond servants were servants. They, they put themselves in a servant-master relationship because they wanted to be there. They wanted to serve this master. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said that anyone who comes to Christ must come with that attitude of, and he uses the same word, of a bond servant. We fall at Jesus' feet and we say, You are king, Lord, and treasure, not my will, but yours be done. 
In Romans 1.1, Paul actually called himself, referred to himself in his ministry, that he was a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul redeemed this concept, and often when he used uh, this Greek word doulos, he was speaking of this idea of bondservants. Now that said, some translations, I read out of the ESV this morning, some translations rightly translate this verse in Ephesians 6 more broadly and don't use the word bondservants, depending on what version of the Bible you might have in front of you today, it might actually say slaves. Slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. That's a broader uh, interpretation of that or translation of that, speaking to both bondservants and those who had come into slavery through wickedness. Because remember, this is a very cruel Greco-Roman world that this letter was written in. And passages like this have been used to criticize Christianity as if Paul is somehow endorsing slavery, as his writings and the writings of the other apostles don't seem to overthrow the institution of slavery and call for revolution. But that accusation usually comes from people hostile to the faith who read things into the Bible that aren't there and try to paint our faith in horrible colors. There's a few things we need to understand when we read texts like this, whether or not Paul was using the term bondservants or the more broad term slaves, which would include bondservants and those who came into that slave-master relationship, not of their will. First of all, we need to understand that the gospel doesn't always seek to change someone's circumstances, but change them in the circumstances. The gospel always seeks to give grace to people in the circumstances they are in while they live in them. So Paul's writings were not aimed at overthrowing a very cruel Greco-Roman society, but instead sought to shepherd the hearts of God's people who lived in that Greco-Roman society, which is what the gospel always does to people in all spheres, in all cultures, in all places, at all times. The gospel meets people where they are, and the message of the gospel is you can experience freedom that no one can take away from you freedom in Christ. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor, you know, things past or things to come will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's true freedom. And that's the freedom the gospel offers us. And let's face it, you can be free circumstantially, but still a slave to sin. America is full of free people who are prisoners of sin and deception. They don't need their circumstances changed. They need their hearts changed. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24, Paul actually gives us insight into how he viewed the the circumstances of a new convert in Christ. Because people were coming to Christ in all these different situations. And so he kind of lays it out and and he actually says, this is how I want all the churches to, uh, to treat people and their circumstances when they are converted to Christ. Here's what he says. Only let each person... Live the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. He says, this is my rule for all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was when called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant 
is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So Paul had such a high view of God's sovereignty and providence that he taught contentment and peace as the goal in whatever circumstances God had placed someone in. That's how Paul viewed his own life. He said, I've learned how to abound and I've learned how to be abased. And I've learned the secret of contentment, that godliness with contentment is great gain. This is the gospel he taught and this was his practice in the churches as they saw people come to Christ. Now, if Paul didn't teach this, and if the gospel didn't teach this, Christianity could have been viewed as a violent and threatening religion with a a subversive agenda in the culture that it lived in. The minute someone gets saved, they revolt against all their relationships. Instead, Paul encouraged people to trust God with their circumstances and relationships and seek to show the glory of God in every context. I mean, let's consider this for all of us in this fallen world we live in. If the goal of the gospel was for God to remove those who believe the gospel from every hard circumstance, then why wouldn't God just beam us all up to heaven the minute we get saved out of this fallen world that is so full of pain and suffering? So if God wouldn't do it in a macro sense, why would he do it in a micro sense? In other words, if he wouldn't pull us who believe out of this fallen world, then why would he pull us out of a hard marriage? or a hard job, or a hard situation. You see, the gospel seeks to meet us where we are, change our hearts where we are, and glorify God right where we are. Not that he never changes our circumstances. Paul said, if you can secure your freedom, secure your freedom. But he said, don't worry about it. Just seek to glorify God. Your mission is to glorify God right where you are. If the gospel didn't offer a different kind of freedom than the world has, then our message as the Christian church would be, that we have no message for the world. In other words, we want the same things you do. We just know how to get them. But the gospel offers a different freedom, an internal freedom, a freedom of the heart. Look at Paul in Acts chapter 16. You remember that story when he and Silas were arrested in Philippi and they were chained to the prison wall? We pick up the story in verse 25, Acts 16. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself because he thought the other prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted out, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell before Paul and Silas, Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I want you to notice that before they were out of the prison, the prison was out of them. You see that? The earthquake didn't happen and the doors fling open and then Paul and Silas are like, Yeah, let's sing. This is great. Let's give praises to God. Nope. They were still in prison. Their circumstances didn't appear to be changing in any way. And they began to sing the song of the Lord. And I like that. It says the other prisoners were watching. You know the other prisoners are watching, right? As we walk through our circumstances, as we walk through our hardships, the other prisoners are watching. So Paul, even after this miracle, actually didn't run from the prison. He sought to glorify God in the circumstances he was in. 
And eventually, God did work this great miracle where they, they escaped. But our society says, easy is good and hard is bad. The gospel says, the will of God is good, whether it is hard or easy. Whether we're in seasons of, you know, where the world is as it should be, and we're enjoying seasons of prosperity and health and wealth, or whether we're in seasons where we're suffering with sickness and pain and persecution, we glorify God in our circumstances. So, number one, the gospel doesn't always seek to change someone's circumstances, but to give them grace while they live in them. The second thought is, the Christian gospel had within it the seed needed to ultimately overthrow slavery. And Paul's general attitude towards slavery is actually best seen in the letter to Philemon. There it should be noted that while the institution, unnatural and wicked as it is and was, is left untouched, Paul's declaration of the common fellowship in Christ for master and slave, puts forth the principle, a principle that is totally incompatible with slavery and ultimately was destined to destroy it. Even in this letter to the Ephesians, remember the great theme is that all believers are in Christ. And so now Paul is talking to bondservants, lowly bondservants and slaves, those who would have had a low view forced on them from society, and he's treating them the same way he treats everyone, that we are co-heirs in Christ. And he actually says, there's no partiality with God. In other words, God and Paul don't see distinctions between classes, ranks, positions, and circumstances. A king to God is the same as a beggar. We all receive the same grace and we all receive the same salvation. Therefore, we all ought to fear in the way we treat one another. And he's saying, master and slave, master and servant, you both should fear because you are co-heirs with Christ and don't mistreat the servant of another. One commentary writer says, both the Old and New Testament state principles which are fatal to the extreme forms of slavery familiar in the Roman world. The gospel teaches the value and the equality of all believers before God and the value and equality of all believers before God sets in place the dignity of all people that would pull Christians throughout the centuries like a magnet toward the abolition of slavery. It was Christians, after all, who led the charge against the slave trade in early America. And in England, William Wilberforce, maybe you're familiar with that name if you haven't seen the movie Amazing Grace. It's really a beautiful film. He felt led to teach the dignity of all to England. And by the end of his life... He sought to see slavery abolished in England. And William Wilberforce actually died just three days after hearing that the Slavery Abolition Act was passed in 1833. The dream and desire of his life. Further, slave trading was condemned in the Bible and was punishable by death in the Old Testament. So, the gospel doesn't always seek to change a person's circumstances, but give them grace while they live in those circumstances. Number two, the Christian gospel had within it the seed to ultimately overthrow slavery because it teaches that we're all co-heirs with Christ and it teaches the dignity of all people. And number three, this text is really a message to the working man and the working woman and therefore can be applied to all of us. And I want to spend the rest of my time just encouraging those who are in the workforce today from this text of Scripture. Three encouragements to Christian men and women in the workforce. Number one, work as worship. 
Turn your work into worship. Turn your work into something that you are doing unto the Lord to glorify God. And here's the verse again, verses 6 and 7 from our text today in Ephesians. He says, work not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to, to man. There it is right there, as to the Lord. So take your work, take your job, take your vocation, and we sanctify it, we consecrate it for a holy purpose, and we say, this is my gift to serve in the community, to break into the community, and to use it for the good of others and for the glory of God as unto the Lord. And Paul is speaking here, again, to master and servant, to employer and employee, and he's saying, you work for God and you answer to God, therefore fear the Lord. To the employer, he says, be fair and good and stop threatening your employees. Be kind, be generous. To the employee, he says, do what you do with excellence, even when they're not watching. Don't just give them eye service because there's another eye that's on you all the time, the eye of the Lord. So do what you do with excellence as worship. So how you work, how you train, how you how you contribute, how you interact in your workplace is all part of your worship. You know, we, we've got to get rid of this dualistic mentality that says, here's my sacred life, here's my secular life. The gospel doesn't teach dualism. In other words, this is my religious life. I mean, this is how, this is how the unconverted religious person thinks. This is my religious life. I punch my religious time card. I, go to, I went to church. I, you know, I, I did the rituals. And then I get back to my secular life. No, a, a Christian, someone who loves God and has faith in God, knows that that partition between sacred, sacred and secular has been removed, and everything is worship. And so the gospel says, whatsoever you do, I mean, that's like everything. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So take your work, take your vocation, take your skills, and sanctify it for the glory of God. And one of the best ways to do that is to just do really well at what you're doing. Martin Luther was once asked, by a shoe cobbler during the Reformation, a man that wanted to use his work for the glory of God. And he was wondering, like, how do I do that? Do I, you know, do, like, should I put little Bible verses on my shoes? Um, should I, like, preach a message as I'm giving the shoes to my customers? And Martin Luther said, um, make good shoes. Right? That, that, that's a way you can... Glorify and honor and worship God is just do well at your work. I remember when I was in college, um, I worked for a business called the House Doctor, plumbing, electrical, construction, heating, and AC. And um, you know, I now know enough to be dangerous. I mean, my motto around the house is "I'll make it work." <laughs> if you need help, I can help. Uh, you know, I might cob it together, but man, I'll make it work. But uh, Alan Daniels, our, our boss, our, the, the uh, employer, was, uh, he was a Christian man. And he sought to glorify God through his work, the way I'm describing to you. And I remember one story that kind of floated around with the employees there was we were working in uh, Canton, New York. And uh, the, the crew was putting a, a roof on the backside of, of the house. And Alan was there uh, working with the crew. And, and um, one of the guys said, oh, that's good enough. And Alan said, No. That's not how we do things. First of all, the Lord sees, and we want to do it in a way that honors Him. Um, 
And second of all, we are excellent at whatever we do, whether people are looking or not. Uh, whether, and I think the guy said, they're not going to see this on the other side of Canton. He said, it doesn't matter who sees it on the other side of Canton. We know it. We'll see it. And we want to have enough respect for ourselves and our work to do it well and to do it unto the Lord. Well, okay. And he got it right. Well, little did anybody know that the homeowner that hired the house doctor was, had the window cracked and was actually listening to the conversation. And that just absolutely... Uh, blew them away that Alan would say that and have that kind of an attitude when no one was looking. What was Alan doing? He, he wasn't just giving eye service to the person that had contracted him. He said, I want to do what I do unto the Lord. And I want you, my crew, to do what you do unto the Lord. And we're going to do it well. We're going to do it right. And we're going to be excellent in doing it because it honors God, even if nobody sees it on the other side of Canton. There's another story of... Uh, Tim Keller, Manhattan, um, Redeemer Manhattan uh, Church in New York City. He told the story of a, a woman who came to his church, and he was talking to this young woman after service one day, and he said, um, how did you end up here at Redeemer? And she told the story of how she worked for this, you know, big, wealthy, high-rise Manhattan company, and, and uh, she, was, she was young, you know, in that company, and uh, didn't have a lot of capital to make mistakes, you know, like... They're kind of watching her and they're evaluating her. And she made a terrible mistake that cost the business a lot of money. And she thought not only would she be called on the carpet for it, she thought she might lose her job. But an older employee, um, a man that had been there for years and had more capital than she did, you know, in other words, he could make a mistake and not get fired. Um, he took the blame for her mistake. And she got off the hook. And she found out about it and found out that he had done that. And uh, she went to him. And, you know, they, they were friends, but it wasn't like they'd known each other for a really long time. So she was really shocked and curious why he would, why he would do this act of kindness and sacrifice for her. And so she went to him and she said, why did you do that? Why did you take the hit? And he said, well, you want me to shoot straight with you? She said, yeah. He said, well, I'm a Christian and Jesus showed me incredible grace and mercy when I failed him. And so I want to show my life is about showing grace and mercy to others. And, and I've asked the Lord for ways to do that at work. And when I heard what happened, I, I thought this is an opportunity for me to demonstrate the love of God here at work. And I knew that I had more capital than you did and that I could take the hit, and I wouldn't lose my job, but that you would. So I wanted to do that to just to show the love of God to you. <laughs> and her response was a question. She goes, where do you go to church? And it wasn't long after that, she went to Manhattan, Redeemer, and came to Christ and had this conversation with Tim Keller. How did you end up at this church? God at work. Work as worship. You work Unto the Lord. So convert your workplace into a mission field. Convert your workplace into worship and seek to glorify God in that. And, and ask God for, for new ways to do that. Ask God for opportunities. And he'll give you opportunities to do that. It's awesome. Okay, number two. Work for heavenly wages. Work for heavenly wages. He says in verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. 
whether he is a bondservant or free. In other words, you ain't just working. If you're a Christian, you're not just working for a paycheck from your business. You not only work for the Lord, you'll receive wages back from the Lord. It's really an interesting part of scripture we don't talk a lot about, but just the idea that Jesus and his apostles talked often about heavenly rewards. And of course, salvation is the great reward that we will all receive, but there does seem to be different levels of reward in heaven. And Jesus sought to motivate his followers with these rewards. Now, as we talk about this, let's remember those rewards have nothing to do with salvation. That's already been done by Jesus. That's finished. But it is in scriptures, and both Christ and his apostles talked about it. Matthew 5, 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 1 Corinthians 3, the apostle writes, The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Talk about a quarterly evaluation. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. And in Proverbs 18.11, even even in the, the wisdom book, it gives some reference to this when it says, The wicked worketh a deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. Jonathan Edwards talked about this idea of heavenly rewards and how we might think about that in a gospel-centered way when he said, Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full. Though there are some vessels far larger than other vessels, and there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. I like to think of the rewards of heaven that it might be like uh, all those who get a ticket to go see the Super Bowl, you know, if you're, a, if you're an NFL fan. Everyone who has a ticket is thrilled to be there, but everyone experiences the joy very differently and by degree. The one on the 50-yard line might experience the joy uh, differently than one who's in an executive suite. Or maybe the one in an executive suite might experience the joy and the exhilaration and excitement differently than somebody maybe who's sitting in the cheap seats, you know, in section 407, you know, way up in the nosebleed seats. But everybody's there, and it, it's just levels of, levels of experiencing that joy of being there. And that's what heaven will be like. Nobody's going to be envious. Nobody's going to be like, well, I didn't get a nice mansion. I didn't get a nice house. It's just the degree to which the expression of joy that we will all receive, it does seem to have something to do with these heavenly rewards. And Jesus sought to motivate his followers by that. So did the apostles. So work is worship. Work for heavenly wages. And number three, Paul encourages workers here to go all in on Jesus. In other words, find your identity in Christ, not your work. That your identity ultimately is in him, not in your work. That your work is just an extension or an expression, ultimately. It actually works better when you ultimately find your identity in Christ. He says in verse 6 again, Work not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So here he encourages us, all of us, to see ourselves 
as bondservants. Again, a bondservant was someone who freely gave themselves up wholly to the will of another. So we fall at Jesus' feet and we say, your king and your Lord, not my will, but yours be done. My identity is in you. You complete me, not my work. And Paul said to think like that and to offer ourselves to God like that is reasonable. He said in Romans 12, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. In other words, as we remember the cross, as we remember the mercy and love God showed us in Christ. He says, you offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So he says, after what Christ has done for us, it's reasonable for us to see ourselves this way. It's reasonable for us to find our identity in him and in Christ. And so the whole idea is, I begin my work as a complete person. But I think a lot of us think differently than that. I think, I think the Western world, we're taught to think that your identity is ultimately in your work. And the gospel says, no, your starting point is radically different. You are a complete person. Nothing out there completes you. You're already complete in Christ. And therefore, you can go to work as a complete person and not need anything from work ultimately to complete you as a person. And that actually helps prepare you for persecution if it happens to come at work or for making good choices that aren't greedy or selfish. Uh, for example, um, there was a, a U.S. soccer player a few years back who was, uh, the team decided to uh, put a patch on their shoulder that would promote a very liberal cause that she did not believe in. And she said, I'm sorry, if you're going to force me to wear this patch on my jersey, I can't do it in good conscience. And they said, then you're off the team. And she said, so be it. And she was kicked off the team because she wouldn't go along with the progressive liberal agenda that the U.S. soccer team was trying to promote. So the idea that she entered that sphere and said, I'm a complete person already. I actually don't need anything from this team to complete me. I'm not saying it was easy. I'm not saying it wasn't hard. But she was prepared because she saw her identity in Christ to be persecuted and make a sacrifice if it was necessary because her identity and her ultimateness were not in being a U.S. soccer player. It was being in Christ. I recently had a conversation with another man who said that there was a time in his career when he had an opportunity for a promotion, but he knew it would destroy his time to be able to invest in his family. It would have given him prestige and reputation and, and money. Not that taking promotions is always a negative thing, but in this case, he knew it would be, that the demand on him would steal him away. And so he decided to do what was good for his family and keep the lesser salary and the lesser position and happily maintain that position until his retirement. What prepared him to do that? If his identity was in his work and in sort of climbing the, the ladder of success you know, to being at the top, if that ultimately completed him, he would have made some very bad choices along the way. But as a Christian, he entered the, that work environment and said, I'm complete already in Christ. I don't need a promotion to complete me. I don't need more money to complete me. And it helped him to make a good decision for his family in the midst of work. Why? He went all in on Jesus. This soccer player, she went all in on Jesus. Paul says, offer yourselves a living sacrifice, holy 
and pleasing to God. You might remember the story of Eric Little, Chariots of Fire. You know, you might not agree with his conscience uh, decision to not run on a Sabbath because it was a Sabbath, but that was part of his faith and, and that was part of his worship. And I love it. You know, he, it's like the old Twilight Paris song says, then light from the cross made his race appear small. And to their surprise, he went far from it all. For the love of his Savior, for one priceless jewel, they could not understand, so they called him a fool. He is no fool who gives the thing he cannot keep to buy what he can never lose. I'm completing Christ. I'm a living sacrifice. I'm a bondservant. Not of my earthly employer or my earthly coach. I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do what I do unto him. And the reason it's possible for us to be bondservants and have that kind of relationship with the Father is because Jesus was the first bondservant. In John chapter 5 and verse 19, listen to what he said and tell me if, this is not, if these are not the words of a bondservant. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He obeyed his father. He subjected himself and submitted himself to the father. Remember, a bondservant gives themselves up wholly to another's will. He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He famously said those words in the Garden of Gethsemane. Your will be done, not mine. My life is for you and your glory. And the will of the father sent him to the cross. And the love of the father sent him to the cross. And Christ's love for you sent him to the cross. So now we can all say, like Paul did, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Yeah, he loves the whole world, but guess what? He loves you, little old you. Yeah, you. He loved you and gave himself for you. In a recent episode of American Ninja Warrior, anybody see that show? You know what I'm talking about? You like that show? Yeah, I like that too. Uh, they, they've actually got like a, is it like a Ninja Warrior factory up in Henrietta? Is that what it's called? I don't, it's, there's some business that like, if you want to train for that, I guess you can go up there and do that. So anyway, John, if you want to do that, you're good to go. Well, there's this episode where a woman ran her race sort of in, in the place of a friend of hers who had cerebral palsy and wanted to run and wanted to train but couldn't. And so she said, I'm running for her. I'm running in her place. I'm her substitute. And it was inspiring just to see her go through that course, knowing that she was representing her friend. And that's what Jesus did for us. We were helpless. And he ran the race we couldn't run. And now we are in him. We couldn't, he could. We didn't, he did. And through faith in him, we are united with him as it teaches In Ephesians, we are in him. And it's as if we ran that race, completed it, and won the race. We get his victory because he ran in our place. And in Christ, we rest. And we begin our days and our work loved and complete. And yet in the world, we're never enough, are we? We always need to impress. We always need to work for the approval of others. We can't rest. It's like, the, um, it's like the great actress or actor who 
performs beautifully in the play or the musical, and they get the standing ovation of the crowd and walk off the stage and moments later realize, I've got to do it all over again tomorrow. I've got to see if I can put them on their feet again tomorrow. You know, my Nike running app has this coach that comes on, this, you know, this recording that comes on if you finish, once you finish your run. And it's, a, this, you know, this encouraging coach kind of encouraging you to, to, to keep running, get out there and do it. And so uh, last week I finished my run and, you know, I, I hit stop and, and I saved the run. And, and on comes the coach's voice. And the coach said, great job getting out there and running today. You know what's even greater? Getting out there and running again tomorrow. I was just like, oh, <laughs> I just finished the, I just finished running man, and just realizing oh, I got I got to get out there again. And that's our world, isn't it? You spun the plates today. You did it. Go do it again tomorrow. And I'm not saying it's not good to be encouraged and motivated to go do it again tomorrow. Right. But, but that's the world we live. In. It's never enough. It's always just out of reach. It's always right out there. You, you got to do it again tomorrow. You got to try to Get that standing ovation tomorrow. You got to get that approval tomorrow, but not in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we rest and we work from rest. Remember that the the first uh, day of the week in the early church was their Sabbath. A picture that we work from rest. We begin with rest and work from rest. A beautiful picture of the gospel. The gospel says, in him we have, have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Not might have, not... One day we'll have, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You can't be any more loved or complete. If you did good works for another thousand years, you wouldn't be any more righteous in the eyes of God than you are right now in Christ. Man, is that not freedom? Is that not beauty? Is that not wholeness? Is that not completion? Therefore, beginning with that place of rest, go and work. And watch the motivations of your heart radically shifted when we begin with the gospel. It creates motivation to love and serve him from the heart. We're not coerced with fears and threats. We're welcome to join Jesus in his mission in this world. Let's pray. First, I want to pray for those who you're not sure if you're a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not sure where you stand with God right now. You're not sure if you've ever placed faith in Christ. You're not sure if you're saved. You can be sure. Believe. We believe in the Lord Jesus. If you, conf- if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In Romans 10, uh, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's you, right? You're in everyone. I want to encourage you right now. Just call on the name of the Lord and say, Jesus, be my salvation. I subject my will to yours. I turn away from my moral record. I turn away from any prop or support that I might have otherwise trusted in. And I discard it as anything that is useful or helpful for me to find my ultimate identity or to save me. And I put my hope in Christ alone. I put my hope in the cross that Jesus ran the race for me. Say that in your heart. Believe that in your heart. And acknowledge. Say, Jesus, I acknowledge 
that I have sinned and fallen short, but that you came to rescue me through the cross. And I receive the gift of salvation as exactly that, as a gift. I receive it as a gift. My hope is in you. My trust is in you. Help me to be a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. And help me to worship you with my life. And if and when I fail to do that, I thank you that there's no condemnation in Christ. That I have an advocate with the Father who always defends me. I thank you, Lord. Help them, Lord. I pray for the the life of the Spirit. I pray for the new birth, Lord, to just begin to work in their hearts and help them to live in this world as children of God. And now I want to pray for those of you that have been walking with the Lord, but maybe if you're like me, you lose sight of what we're talking about today and you lose sight of doing what you're doing unto the Lord. Maybe you've done it unto yourself or unto someone else and and you've just lost sight of just being motivated with a God-centeredness and motivated by worship and motivated by heavenly wages. I want to encourage you just to just to return back to that spot where you can move forward this week in whatever the Lord calls you to do as someone who's doing it unto the Lord, as someone who has a high view of God's sovereignty, that He's placed you in the circumstances you're in right now, even if they're hard, He's placed you in those, whether work or home or life. Let's get in that spot right there where we seek to do what we do for the glory of God. Lord, help them to get there in their hearts by faith, to know that their sins are forgiven, to walk in the joy of their salvation, and to seek your glory in their lives, in their work, in their home, in their circumstances, today and in the days to come. And as we close this time of worship and leave this place, I pray we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and the life of the Spirit. And know the love of God in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.